Hi, this is John Lomberg. I was the design director on the Voyager Golden Record, and I'm with you on the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Experience, heard exclusively here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. We like to call this radio station, as many others do, the crown jewel of radio, iconic 77 Talk Radio, WABC, beaming out of New York City, the nation, the world, and the cosmos, as we welcome you to another exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Experience. Email me often at drskyshow at gmail.com. As we continue to talk with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. And today, ladies and gentlemen, a most exciting guest. In just a moment, we'll be welcoming John Lomberg. He's an artist and writer whose major interests are astronomy and music. He illustrated Carl Sagan's The Cosmic Connection, and his paintings appear on the Ontario Science Center and the Smithsonian Institution's Air and Space Museum. Why John Lomberg? He, along with other contributors to this amazing book that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you will find most phenomenal, Murmurs of Earth, the Voyager Interstellar Record, this, a most momentous interview about the record that's on this particular series of spacecraft known as the Voyagers, launched back in 1977 when yours truly was only 21 years of age, but now at the spry age of 67. With that, let's welcome our special guest, John. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Dr. Sky Experience. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. Well, I appreciate your time, sir. This is most fascinating. You know, I had a rare opportunity when I was a young man. I went up to Cornell University to visit, and I was given a short opportunity to speak with Dr. Sagan, a most interesting time when I was, of course, much younger but full of inspiration that he gave me and so many other people. Talk briefly about your experiences with Dr. Sagan, because this starts off the interview as to how this whole, con- you know, this whole idea of creating this most momentous re- you know, Voyager interstellar record. Talk about your early relationship with Dr. Sagan. Well, Carl Sagan and I were friends for 25 years, and we worked on a lot of projects together. Uh, including the TV series Cosmos and the movie Contact. It began with a fan letter that I wrote to him uh, regarding his work on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and his creation of the Pioneer plaque, which was the uh, predecessor of the Voyager Golden Record, which to me was just the most fantastic thing ever. Uh, We met uh, when he was still starting his career really as a as a public communicator and and had a fruitful kind of Gilbert and Sullivan collaboration for uh, almost 25 years. That's amazing. And people can learn so much more about this. You have a chapter in chapter three entitled Pictures of Earth, a most fascinating story. The book is in my hands. And I can assure you, John, I'm not letting this book get away anytime soon. I gather you realize that this book is what? It's not in print or is it in print? And it's very difficult to find. It took me actually a year to acquire a copy of this book. Talk a little bit about the book, which came out from Random House. This is fascinating. 
Well, the book was written by the uh, six of us who had made the golden record, the the main team that put it all together, uh, discussing our various uh, contributions to it. Uh, it's been out of print for years. Uh, it would be nice if Random House would, would reissue it, but you have to do what you did and search it out online in a used bookstore or something. Yes, absolutely. A lucky find, even the jacket, the cover jacket is not ripped. But equally important, we're talking with yourself, John Lomberg. He is one of the co-creators here of this most fascinating story, the Voyager Interstellar Records, that we're talking with him from his home base in Hawaii, the beautiful state of Hawaii. But as I look through your book here, the quote from Carl Sagan about getting involved with matters yourself in this particular project, you know the words and I'll repeat them, quote, consider yourself co-opted. End quote. That must have been a fascinating feeling. I mean, he obviously respects you for your, you know, artistic work. And by the way, folks, you can learn so much more about John's work. And we'll be giving you that website later on. John, I have to salute you. I, I love your Milky Way uh, graphic description, the artwork that shows this most fascinating, you know, mind's eye view of uh, our galaxy, the Milky Way. Kudos to you. That, that's a beautiful piece. Well, th thank you very much. Carl was uh, the inspiration for a lot of my work, and I like to think that I was the inspiration for for some of his. Uh, we could do together what neither of us could do separately, which made it a beautiful collaboration. Uh, but really, the heart of it was a shared interest in the whole notion of communication with uh, other beings. How could we communicate with them? And... Carl came at it from the point of view that science would be the kind of Rosetta Stone that would allow us to understand each other. And I made the argument that art might do the same. And if we're looking for a message from the stars, it might not be an equation. It might be a fugue. And he liked this idea. So when the uh, opportunity arose to actually send some music into space on the golden record, he asked me to be part of the team, which was uh, indeed thrilling. Yes, it's a high honor, my friend. And again, equally high honor to have you as our special guest. If you're just tuning in, the Dr. Sky Experience continues proudly on America's number one radio station. That is Talk Radio 77 WABC. As I mentioned before, we call it, and many others agree, the crown jewel of radio. Broadcasting, what, John? Out of New York, around the nation, around the world. And who knows? I'm even kind of confident out into the universe. An exceptional time. But now let's talk a little bit more. You kind of get the spirit of cooperation with Carl Sagan, Dr. Sagan. And now talk about this, because I'm reading in the book here, there was such an extremely short amount of time, not only to what? Convince the folks at NASA that this is an important ingredient on this messenger to the stars. You had virtually limited time to even do this. Tell us the story from there, because... That's amazing. How do you find the right images in such a short period of time? That must have been an overwhelming challenge. Tell us about it. Well, there are two numbers that make people's jaw drop when I talk about this project. One is how long the record will last, and that uh, has a lifetime of at least a billion years, a thousand million years. And how often do you get to work on something that's going to last that long? But the second number is that to make this billion-year message from humanity, we only had six weeks. Six weeks from the time oh that Carl gosh. first asked me to work on the project until we had to have the finished design. Uh, 
with all the contents and uh, re- basically ready to bolt onto the spacecraft. So it was uh, an impossible challenge, and looking back on it, I'm kind of amazed that we were able to do it. I'm agreeing. That's incredible. So what did you have to do? You and other associates have to go out to places like libraries and gather books. I mean, and then how do you choose, if I'm correct, the compilation exists in space and time as what, about 116 images? How do you uh, decide which one goes where? And were you one of the final ones to say what goes on there? That's interesting to ask you, too. Yeah, my role as the design director uh, was to supervise uh, a lot of the creative aspects of the project, including the creation of a series of pictures that would describe the Earth. And I think in some ways that was easy. If you ask most people, what would you show? I bet you'd come up with similar lists. You'd show animals, you'd show mountains, you'd show cities, you'd show people doing all kinds of things. Uh, So figuring out the contents wasn't as hard as actually finding the right pictures that would show all these things. Because this was all before the Internet. We couldn't do a picture search. So we literally had to, as you say, go to libraries. And one of the staff members brought in 25 years worth of National Geographic magazines. And we looked through those. And it was it was uh, laborious and crazy. And uh, I found myself having to make uh, the decisions of what would represent a family, what would represent uh, the biosphere, what would represent cities. So it was quite a quite a challenge. Well, I got to ask you this on a very personal note. Human nature would be not that I would do it. You didn't do it. But was there this compulsion to even think and say, wait a minute, I'm doing all this work. I want my own picture to be incorporated on there as one example of a human. I mean, you didn't do that. Kudos to you. There was a bigger meaning behind this other than having a what self-promotion on a spacecraft like that. I mean, so many people might go the other direction, don't you think? Well, I think we all felt uh, a big responsibility, and Carl really uh, explained it to us and gave us our marching orders that what we were making was not a message from NASA or a message even from the United States. It was a message from all mankind, from the whole world. So uh, we sort of had to submerge uh, our, our personalities. But all of us, I think, tried to lobby for the inclusion, for example, of music. Uh, for me, uh, that meant Mozart. When I saw the initial list of uh, candidate yes. composers, Mozart wasn't on it. And I think a lot of musicians would agree that whoever you put on music from Earth, Mozart deserves a spot. So I lobbied successfully to get a, an aria from the Magic Flute included. And I think of all my contributions to the record, that's the one I'm proudest of because without me, he wouldn't have been there. And he's meant so much to me. How do you repay Mozart? Well, I was able to do something yeah. to repay Mozart. So in a sense, I did allow my personality to uh, to influence the content. Well, John, it's a beautiful story as we continue here. The audience will be hearing now, in the words of himself, Carl Sagan, talking about the Voyager and some of the significance of what we're talking about today with you. The Voyager interstellar record. Voyager's passage by Jupiter accelerated it towards a close encounter with the planet Saturn. Saturn's gravity will propel it on to Uranus. And in this game of cosmic billiards after Uranus, it will plunge on past Neptune, leaving the solar system 
and becoming an interstellar spacecraft destined to wander forever the great ocean between the stars. And if Voyager should, sometime in its distant future, encounter beings from some other civilization in space, it bears a message. A phonograph record, golden, delicate, with instructions for use. And on this record are a sampling of pictures, sounds, greetings, and an hour and a half of exquisite music, the Earth's greatest hits. A gift across the cosmic ocean from one island of civilization to another. The record bears, in English, uh, an additional little handwritten greeting. It says, to the makers of music, all worlds, all times. But well, we continue with our special guest, John Lumberg, talking about not only his contribution to this book, which, if you can find a copy of this, cherish it, because Murmurs of, the, Murmurs of Earth, excuse me, the Voyager Interstellar Record, Carl Sagan, Dr. Drake, Andrew Ian, Timothy Ferris, you, John Lumberg, Linda Salzman Sagan. If I'm correct, Linda was responsible for what? The pioneer uh, artwork and plaque, uh, which preceded the one for Voyagers. Is that correct? Yes, Linda drew the two figures of a man and a woman uh, with a man raising his hand in greeting that were part of the uh, message that was the inspiration really for the uh, golden record that followed and also the, uh, the motivation for me to write that fan letter to Carl that started our whole uh, career. He and uh, his colleague Frank Drake and Linda had put together this plaque, which uh, is one of the iconic images of space exploration. Well, this is really fascinating, John. And again, I appreciate your time. Many more questions, a short amount of time today, but we do appreciate it. In the original proposal to NASA, as it shows here on page 74 of the book, we see a depiction of a naked human, meaning a, a male and a female composite together. The story on that goes what? I mean, NASA rejected that one picture. And can you tell us a little bit more about the story behind that? It's an interesting story nonetheless. Well, it seemed obvious to us that if you're going to show aliens what people look like, you should show them what people look like. And that means without their clothes on. And so at the same time, I was very aware that NASA would be extremely sensitive about this picture. So I was looking for something that didn't seem too clinical, certainly that didn't seem too, that didn't seem pornographic in any way. Uh, mm -hmm. So I found what I thought was a very tasteful artistic picture of a, of a nude couple where the woman was uh, about five or six months pregnant, which fit in nicely with a sequence I was building about human reproduction. And that was the only picture that NASA wouldn't let us send. Uh, they were just unflinching. Uh, they wouldn't budge on it. We couldn't send that one. We had to leave it out. But on the other hand, they didn't touch anything else, which, for which I was very grateful. Here's kind of an odd question to you. Do you think if we were doing this right tonight in 2023, with the current way people think and more open-mindedness, I hope, do you think that picture might have passed the litmus test by today's NASA, or what's, what's your feelings on that? Uh, no, I don't. And I think NASA is probably more conservative today. And in a way, the whole society is more conservative and also much more tentative today. Looking back at 1977, even with the Cold War, 
um, we were much more optimistic about the future. You know, the year 2000 was coming and that was going to usher in a new age of, uh, of prosperity and peace and, and kind of the vision of, uh, of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. But what 2001 brought us instead was 9-11. And the 2000s didn't turn out to be this, uh, this future, futuristic paradise that we had kind of hoped for. And I think in general, we're much more uh, cynical. Uh, our visions of the future are much more dystopian. And I don't think we have an open, uh, embracing attitude towards the universe that was conveyed in the golden record. So... Uh, and I think that NASA is probably much more concerned with the Earth audience than the extraterrestrial audience. And for the Earth audience, no, I think a picture of nude people would still be uh, too hot in the current United States. Interesting. Well said. John, we've reached the point of the interview, I think the most fascinating, which I think listeners, including myself, as the interviewer, find most intriguing. Here's a regular LP type record. Now, I say it's nothing regular about the record that we're talking about here on the Voyager. But what I didn't know, this is the revelation that I got from this, and forgive me for being so honest, but there's only one way, and that's to be honest. When you look at that record, and it can play with a little diamond stylus, hopefully some extraterrestrial civilization has the capability, and I'm sure they probably do. Not only do they hear the sounds, but describe to us the part that I just became so you know, educated on is that embedded in this record are ways to actually cultivate the hidden pictures that are inside this record. This to me is most fascinating. Describe this process. And in just a moment, we're going to hear more about that process in detail, but that's incredible. I never knew that. So there was a way that you folks created because there was no real digital technology then. And am I right? The spacecraft was basically operating on like a, what, a 64K memory system on board here? So no digital, just analog. How do you get pictures out of a ready-pressed LP record? That's amazing. Well, in 1977, nobody knew how to put pictures on a record. As you say, this was all before digital imagery. So the pictures on the golden record are not JPEGs. They're not bitmaps. They're not... uh, digital files in any way. Frank Drake, mm-hmm. who was really the presiding technical genius of the project, Carl's partner and, and my boss on the project, uh, figured out a way that you could re- record basically television signals, old-fashioned broadcast video signals, which don't even exist anymore. We're beyond that in video technology. But back, back in the day... Yes. Uh, video signals used to be broadcast, and they were radio waves that could be uh, recorded as sound waves on the record and reconstructed into pictures in a process that I had to diagram and put on the cover of the record as kind of playing instructions. This is how you turn these weird video signals, which are unlike any of the other audio material. They'll certainly recognize that... It's not audio sounds, it's something else. And we hope they'll figure out how to reconstruct them into pictures. But Frank basically invented the, uh, the process and was able to find a company, a small company, Colorado Video, that was able to technically achieve what he envisioned. That's a fascinating story. And what we're going to hear now, John, is a actual, you know, much more detailed explanation than time would permit us today 
of that exact procedure from your creation of the instructions on the cover of the Golden Record. We now listen to the stories of basically simply said how to play the Golden Record and the technology that uh, you and Dr. Drake and Dr. Sagan and others brought to the table. In 1977, NASA sent two Golden Records into space aboard the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft. The Voyager probes have become two of the farthest reaching objects ever launched by humanity. And the Golden Records, real functioning LPs, contain something utterly unique, audio and images from Earth. By 2030, both Voyager 1 and 2 will cease communications for good. And while they won't be able to beam information back to Earth, they're going to continue sailing through space at almost 60,000 kilometers per hour. The hopes are that one or even both of these records will be intercepted by another advanced civilization, revealing a treasure trove of information that will teach whoever finds them about our pale blue dot of a home, light years away. But in order for anyone or anything to see the images contained on the record, they'll have to decode this. And we're going to show you how. If extraterrestrials do find the Golden Records, the first thing they'll come across is its cover, which looks a lot like this. It contains a handful of unique symbols that properly explain how to play the messages sent from Earth. And at first glance, they're pretty complicated. I tried to think, how would an alien look at this picture? And there are always two requirements. You wanted things to be as easy as possible to understand, as clear as possible. But you also wanted, in a limited number of pictures, to have as much information as possible in each picture. So those two requirements are kind of at odds. That's John Lomberg, Carl Sagan's longtime friend and collaborator. John helped curate the contents of the Golden Record and designed the cover. It's, it's permeated the culture uh, in a lot of different ways. The largest of the designs on the cover is the Pulsar map. It helps explain our location in the universe by triangulating Earth's distance from various neutron stars, collapsed stars that give off pulses of radiation, or pulsars. While this information doesn't help decode the record, it would give anyone who finds it a clue as to where it came from in the universe. Every other symbol on the cover, though, is there to explain how to properly play the record and decode the audio. Getting the songs and sounds to play are pretty straightforward. Figure out the correct rotation and speed, and they'll spin just like a normal record here on Earth. Granted, for an alien, figuring out how to work a record might be a challenge in itself. That should be very easy for them to discover. But that's not all that's on the record, and understanding the rest of it is a little bit harder. You might think that the images included on the Voyager spacecraft were printed out or included in some digital form, but the Golden Record isn't a digital disk. There are no JPEGs or TIFFs included on it. The Voyager's computer systems were only 69 kilobytes large, barely enough for one image, let alone 115. And at that time, in 1977, there was no conventional technology for putting pictures on analog disks. NASA had to be a lot craftier with the technology that they had available at the time, especially with the amount of data they were looking to send. And they managed to encode that image data within the audio waveforms themselves. But in order for us to find that data, we need to figure out the rest of the symbols on the cover of the record. Starting on the bottom right, we have a diagram depicting hydrogen, the most abundant gas in the universe. I spoke with Jacqueline Van Gorkum, a professor of astronomy at Columbia University. She explained to me that once in a blue moon, the electron in a hydrogen atom changes the direction of its spin. And so this transition, this happens 
spontaneously bounce every 10 million years, emits a little bit of energy, so it emits a 21 centimeter wavelengths. The hydrogen atom depicted on the cover of the record is undergoing that very unique change, called a hyperfine transition. And what it emits, the 21-centimeter line, is a very specific radio wavelength that astronomers use to map the galaxy, 1420 megahertz. It's sort of mind-boggling. NASA uses that 21-centimeter line as a constant for all the other symbols on the record. If you convert that 1420 megahertz signal into seconds, you get 7.042 times 10 to the negative 10 seconds, or 0.7 nanoseconds. And that one number helps us unlock the rest of the record's symbols. For instance, here's a side view of the record that depicts this binary number around its diameter. When converted to decimal and multiplied by our hydrogen line constant, we get 3,229 seconds, or roughly 53.82 minutes, the total runtime of the record from beginning to end. And on the top-down view, converting this binary number to decimal and multiplying by 0.7 nanoseconds, you get 3.59 seconds, the time it would take for one rotation of the record. So when we play the record that fast, we should hear these sounds. Greetings in 55 languages. Samples of music from around the world. Sounds of Earth, such as oceans, birds, thunder, and whales. And on the other side, this. It's that sound that contains all of the image data for the photos and drawings contained on the golden record. And using the process described in the last few symbols on the cover, we can render the images. This is where things get really interesting. The top right symbol shows how the waveform data should be broken up, with each section of the waveform taking 0.008 milliseconds to play. And according to the symbol below that, each of those sections of data completes one out of a total of 512 scan lines that make up a completed image. To understand the rest of that diagram, you'd have to understand how an old-fashioned cathode ray tube television worked. And few enough people understood it at the time when they were still in use, and fewer understand it now. And while I don't understand cathode ray tubes, I tried an alternate method. Using Audacity, a free audio program, I selected 0.008 milliseconds of audio data between each peak in the waveform, roughly corresponding to the area selected on the cover of the album. I exported that data into a CSV file. The data being exported is essentially just number values based on the volume of waveforms at different points along that 0.008 millisecond section. When you import the CSV into Excel, you can use conditional formatting to assign a different color value for different decibel levels. Lower decibel samples translate into lighter grays, and higher decibels into darker grays. And after doing this for 12 hours and 512 times, we got this. Now, a circle isn't the most exciting thing in the world, but it has a very important purpose. If we look at the last image on the record's cover, we'll see the calibration circle. It's a major waypoint. If aliens manage to decode a shape that matches this, then they'll know that they're onto something. There's no way we're going to do that for the remaining 114 images. But fortunately, we live in a world where code can help, and maybe aliens will too. We reached out to Manuel Arturo Izquierdo, an anthropologist who wrote his own code in one night to make this process much, much faster. Basically, the idea is take the thread of numbers and fold them in a way you can convert the thread into a kind of surface, yeah? Manuel's code takes these 0.008 millisecond signals and folds them as they would appear in an old television set, rendering an image. He uploaded the code to GitHub for others to use, and Emily Malik-Brown, a developer on our product team, 
helped get the code up and running on my computer. To our astonishment, the images appeared right before our eyes, proving that even 40 years later and with completely different technology, the messages could still be properly decoded. So with the help of an astronomer, an artist, a coder, an anthropologist, Microsoft Excel, and Python, we were able to decode the golden record. But let's not forget, we're not the intended audience for this. Is an extraterrestrial civilization really going to have a shot at this? For John, that's really besides the point. Whatever happens to it in space, whatever its unknown destiny is, I think it represents a high watermark of, of our civilization when we dream the biggest dream, really. And I hope it will serve as an example and inspiration for people to keep dreaming. Hey everyone, thanks for watching our video. Check out Vox.com's Golden Record video where they have a selection of the images and some of the audio and songs that played as well. And don't forget to subscribe to our Verge Science YouTube channel. I find that fascinating. And as we close here, just a few more questions. I know you're a busy person, but if I'm correct on this, Dr. Sagan's son, Nick, also has a speaking part on this particular incredible record. And I quote, hello from the children of planet Earth, end quote. Talk a little bit more about this, because we're seeing so many different people, so many different cultures. And then I have to ask you this question. With the obvious studies that you have and with Dr. Sagan, just give us your look-see on this potential and probability of life in the universe, and then go on to talk about what intelligent life is out there, in your opinion. I mean, you're a man of science. You talk about this as a journalist. Give us your look-see on the hopefulness of a population universe other than just people on Earth? Well, everybody wants to know if we're alone in the universe. And for a lot of people, what they mean is, is there somebody here visiting us already? Because a lot of people believe we already have been contacted by aliens. I don't. And I don't think there's any good evidence that, that we have been. Uh, mm -hmm. So on the level of UFOs and aliens being part of our history and present in our uh, world, no, I'm a, I'm a total skeptic on that. I think that requires serious proof, and I don't think that there has been anything, including the recently released Air Force and government files. But on the larger question of is there life elsewhere in the universe, I would say that uh, everything that we've learned in astronomy, planetary science, and biochemistry uh, suggests that the origin of life is, is easy, that the building blocks of life are common, that the processes that led to life here uh, are present in countless places throughout the universe. And uh, Darwinian evolution, the way uh, forms got more complex and achieved their, their variety, is a, is a process that's going to happen everywhere. So nobody can come up with any, any reason except possibly a religious one why yes. we shouldn't live in a universe that's absolutely full of life. But even in a universe full of life, intelligent life may be very rare, and finding it may be very difficult, which is why we haven't found any yet, even though we've been looking. But I remain optimistic, and I think yeah. that the, uh, nobody knows the odds of the golden record being found, but they're not zero. 
And that's a, that's a thrilling prospect. Of course, even if it's not found, it still remains as a kind of a testament to us with some of the best of us, some of our best music and some of some beautiful images of our beautiful planet. And the fact that that will outlast us and still be around in the universe is, uh, is an equally thrilling thought. Well, it's well said and very optimistic. Just a couple of more closing questions and comments from you. Describe to us the cover of the Golden Record. And then the second part of my question would be, is this record available for people to purchase? I mean, so many people now that are audiophiles, you know, I go into all these different stores, the old description of record stores like you, I'm sure. And I remember a great one in California called Rasputin Records, and I used to spend hours in there. Can you simply buy a copy of this uh, LP, uh, even if it's not the golden one? I mean, what, what, what say you on that before you go on to describe the cover? Well, it turns out to be easier to send a record across the galaxy than it is to get a record released here on Earth. In the uh, more than 40 years uh, since, there was one effort. Time Warner released a CD-ROM with the music and the pictures on it back in the early 90s. Uh, that's still out there and available, but there's nothing in print that's a replica of the record that you can you can buy. And I still cherish the hope that someday somebody may, might wait, make one. But on the other hand, nearly all the contents are available to see on the Internet. If you just search Golden Record, and there's a NASA site uh, at JPL that has a... Uh, a pretty good description of everything on it. And then there's just uh, a huge amount of literature about the Golden Record, uh, books and magazine articles and TV documentaries and a, a wonderful uh, documentary film called The Farthest. So there's a lot of material about mm -hmm. the Golden Record out there for anybody that's interested. And with a little bit of searching, you can, uh, you can hear everything that's on it and see everything that's on it. Uh, the cover of the record, which uh, is my uh, immortal piece of art, uh, an etching that will last until interstellar dust gradually erases it, and the time that'll take is thousands of millions of years, uh, basically shows a picture of the record seen from the top and the side with the cartridge and stylus that we include in the box with the record. Uh, so they don't have to invent the needle. We give them one. And it shows huh. how you play it on the record. And then it also shows a, uh, a sequence of how the video signals, and we show what the video signals look like. And any engineer is going to put these signals through something like an oscilloscope to see their waveform. So we show that waveform, and we show how it's to be reconstructed into a picture. And the example that's given is the very first picture in the sequence. So if they figure it out, they'll know from the cover that, that they're doing it right. Well, John, it's a real honor to speak with you. I mean, I could spend hours talking with you about my experiences with Dr. Sagan, albeit very short, but yours are much more lifelong dedication. And, you know, talk about what, what it means to you to miss him. I mean, how sad a man taken in, in the prime of his life. I mean, on a personal, emotional note, that's, uh, that's a big loss from somebody that you knew as a friend. Just describe that, and, and I say that with all due respect. Well, Carl and I were very good friends, uh, close personal friends, so it was an enormous loss, and at his young age, it was, uh, it was a tragedy, and it wasn't only a tragedy for his friends, I think it was a tragedy for society.
Um, scientific literacy is, is just getting lower and lower. And it's never been more important to be literate in science. And he was the champion of that. And there are so many times when I thought, Carl, where are you now that we, that we need you? So he's missed mm-hmm. on that level. On a personal level, I miss him. I dream about him a lot. And uh, one of the things I miss mm-hmm. about him that, that didn't come across, and when people ask me what he was like, something I always try to mention is he was so funny. He could have had a career as a stand-up comic. He just, he could tell a story and have a room full of people just rolling on the floor. His timing was perfect. He were, and he was so much fun to be with. And often when we would tell him, we said, Carl, loosen up a little bit. You know, let's let that side of yourself come out in your public. But he, he was always a little reluctant to do that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why, but for those of us who knew him, he was just, he was just a great guy. Wow. John Lomberg, an honor. I hope we can talk again and carry on the tradition here of the Voyager Interstellar Record. He being a contributor to Murmurs of Earth, a book that I cherish, and maybe you can find a copy of that. But if in the meantime, I recommend you go to John's website. His name is John, spelled J-O-N. So it's John Lomberg, L-O-M-B-E-R-G dot com. Wealth of information there. John, if you stay on the line as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour, I do appreciate that. And ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you for joining us on the Dr. Sky Experience. Great interviews from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. Celebrity guests and musical guests in the mix. Just to keep, as we always say, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies, your feet on the ground. And I, like myself and many others like yourself, John, we look to be navigators on the highway to the heavens. Thank you for your time here. That concludes this exciting edition, I'm sure, as it goes into history on the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Thank you for your time, John. It's been an honor. Thank you.